Welcome, my name is Stats. Uh, welcome to the third and final in this series of lectures on uh, terrorism by Tony Cody, who, uh, if you don't, if you haven't been to the others, uh, Tony is a professor of uh, applied philosophy at the University of Melbourne and visiting Leverhulme lecturer uh, here at Oxford uh, this term. Uh, and today he's going to be speaking to us about counterterrorism uh, for the final in this three-part series. So join me in welcoming Tony. Okay. Uh, in considering the way that states react to terrorist attacks, we need to bear in mind certain background facts about states and facts and perspectives about states. Since terrorism is a form of political violence, we must first consider the state's normal attitude to that. This is premised on the fact that states are certain to view political violence within the state that they do not control as something to be punished and suppressed. As Max Faber once argued, states are partly constituted by their having a monopoly on the use of violence within their boundaries. They regard this monopoly as essential to their fulfilment of, the, of the, their purpose in maintaining stability and order within their boundaries. Challenges to this monopoly are inevitably greeted with strong emotional, rhetorical, policing and legal actions. A second background fact is that states, and particularly modern states, exercise tremendous power over their citizens, a power which is, as Lord Acton famously noted, inevitably prone to corruption. This is true even of those states we tend to view most favourably, namely those we call democratic. One reason for the favourable assessment and for the title democratic is that these states are constrained in the exercise of great power by some recourse, varying in degree and, equal and quality, to the will of the people governed. And in those states that are not only democratic but liberal in orientation, there are forms of constitutional protection and redress to protect against abuses of state power or even the power of majorities. This is not to say that state power cannot be used for good and noble purposes. Uh, the creation and maintenance of public broadcasting services such as the BBC in this country and the Australian Broadcasting Commission in Australia and of national health services in the UK and elsewhere is testimony to this possibility. Nonetheless, the tendency to corruption and abuse of state power is very real. And for those of us who believe in this inherent tendency to abuse, the crisis brought about by the events of September 11, 2001 and subsequent attacks by Islamic extremists is cause for concern, not only about terrorist events, but also about government reactions to them. These reactions have not been restricted to internal police, security and legal measures, of course, since they've also involved a considerable military response by many powers, notably the USA, but also a number of its allies. This raises a question about the relative value of legal responses and military responses and, and of the connections between them, which I'll be talking about. Before we address this question, however, I want to recall my tactical definition of terrorism, particularly for those who weren't here for the first lecture, uh, as a political act ordinarily committed by an organised group, which up there anyway, um, in which severe violence is intentionally directed at non-combatants or innocents or their significant property. In that lecture, we examined various clarifications of this and I discussed quite a large number of objections to it, which I totally dealt with, of course. I want now only to recall a competing definition uh, then analysed. A notable competitor to my sort of definition or a competitor type as we've seen, is what I call a political status definition. 
Unlike the tactical definition, this insists that only certain categories of agents can commit terrorist acts, since these are, by definition, acts committed against a state by sub-state actors. The term sub-state is meant to operate indexically to mark a contrast with the actions of officially authorised governmental agents. Hence, the agents of a foreign state could still be terrorists if they committed attacks upon the home state, at least in certain contexts, such as peacetime, according to this definition. Some political status definitions narrow the field somewhat by holding that only politically motivated attacks against a legitimate or democratic state will count as terrorist. And I raised objections to that last time. Either way, these definitions are, I believe, inadequate, principally because they make it impossible to speak of state terrorism by one's own state and of other states against their own populations. Though perhaps there's room for state-sponsored terrorism by other states against one's own. In addition, given the common view that terrorism is always morally wrong, they tar all violent revolutions with the same brush, making it difficult to speak of a just or morally legitimate revolution. It's particularly ironic, as I mentioned before, that political status definitions are so common in the United States, a nation founded, as noted earlier, by violent revolution that is an object of veneration in that country. In what follows, I shall have in mind a tactical definition of my type uh, uh, and, and understanding of the phenomenon of terrorism and terrorist acts, though some of what I say is relevant to political status definitions. It's also worth noting that most of the legal definitions, as we'll see, in anti-terrorist legislation are explicitly or implicitly of the political status type. For the purposes of this paper, I will often in what follows refer to terrorism or terrorists with basically sub-state agents in mind, for example, when raising a question about whether terrorists should be considered criminals or soldiers. That question could indeed be raised about states and their agents in a different way, and on the tactical definition it should be. But its usual locus of discussion is with sub-state agents hostile to the state. This pragmatic narrowing of vision for expository purposes by me should not be seen as any departure from the main thrust of the tactical definition, which allows that states can use terrorism and indeed use it more dreadfully, either against their own people or against other states or external groups. Some states might even qualify for the title terrorist state. Indeed, legal and other measures to prevent state terrorism should preoccupy us more than they do, and the prevention of the use of terrorism by states has claims to be a more urgent task than the prevention of terrorist states by sub-state groups. Nonetheless, sub-state terrorism raises the question of prevention in an acute form, since the threat posed is not one that is indicated by massive increase in conventional military forces or the conspicuous build-up of armaments. Now, I have a, uh, a discussion here, as I say there, of uh, issues to do with uh, the moral... Uh, a moral or a legal regulatory sense of non-combatant or of innocent and uh, relations between them, and there's a which we've discussed to some extent in an earlier lecture, uh, but I'm going to omit that here. Um, so I'm omitting a section um, discussing the best interpretation of the principle of the immunity of non-combatants. Uh, that section distinguishes between a moral and a legal regulatory interpretation and the relation between them, as I said. The legal interpretation will ignore the, uh, what is, as it were, the jus ad bellum justification of any particular resort to violence uh, in a political cause and will treat non-combatants as roughly equivalent to civilians. 
In fact, a version of the legal or regulatory sense is best suited to the discussion of terrorism in most contexts, since we uh, to um, counterterrorism in most contexts, since we need to distinguish groups using violence on behalf of a political cause who respect the immunity of those who are not deploying violence against them or those they represent, or not aiding substantially in its deployment, from groups who resort to violence precisely against the cate that category of persons in order to advance their cause, perhaps through creating fear or anger or whatever. And this is regardless of the justice of their cause. Even here, we should be careful of the label, uh, labels terrorist or terrorist group, since some insurgent or revolutionary groups use non-terrorist tactics, violent or otherwise, for the most part, and resort to terrorist tactics occasionally. Branding such groups terrorist and criminalising support for them risks ignoring the fact that they may be pursuing a legitimate grievance through mostly legitimate means, both violent and non-violent, and external support may be for those possibly legitimate purposes. What might further concern us is the interesting question that has many uh, practical uh, consequences, whether terrorists should be treated as soldiers or civilians, combatants or civilians. This tracks the issue whether terrorists should be dealt with by the criminal law, the laws of war, or by mixtures of both. I've so far pre uh, proceeded by invoking just war categories, such as combatant and non-combatant, uh, in earlier lectures and in this, because one locus of attention to terrorism is in the context either of war or of armed struggle for broadly political purposes. It's not surprising that IRA prisoners in Northern Ireland sought status as prisoners of war instead of criminals in order to be recognised that they were fighting for political objectives and not the usual criminal ones. Those of them who were terrorists, and not all were on my definition, should of course be regarded as guilty of what would be war crimes in a normal war, so there was certainly a strong taint of criminality in a broad sense about what they did, even if they were also guilty of breaking normal criminal laws, such as the law against murder. Jeff McMahon has argued that it's better to treat terrorists as criminals, though he thinks their status hovers somewhere between um, a criminal and combatant. He's partly moved by worries about the Bush administration's determination to treat them as combatants, indeed illegal combatants or enemy combatants, in an unusual sense of that phrase, so that they could be killed outright rather than arrested and tried. He much prefers the path of arrest and trial. I have a good deal of sympathy with this, but much depends on context. Where the individuals are working on a terrorist project alone or in a small group with only remote and fragile connections to an organised force, it seems better to view them in a context of criminal efforts and seek arrest and trial. This will be particularly pertinent where the suspected terrorists are citizens, residents of the state attempting to deal with them. Call it State A. Where the suspected terrorists are citizens, residents of another country, State B, but planning an attack on State A, then recourse to the policing cap capabilities of State B is again preferable, but that depends, of course, on the integrity and efficiency of those forces. <coughs> Where terrorist attacks are used by organised armed forces engaged in insurrection or the like, in something resembling a theatre of war, the response must have more of a military flavour, even if it falls short of all-out war. And even police may have to use lethal violence where necessary against people who are in the process of perpetrating a terrorist attack. Indeed, modern-day police have armed response units that have quasi-military roles 
in, for instance, hostage situations that need not involve terrorists. Even so, the arrest and trial path, in spite of some of its disadvantages mentioned below, has the obvious merits that is less prone to error, is likely to cause far less collateral damage, normally has review procedures capable, in principle at least, of dealing with abuses of power, and has less potential for fanning more terrorist flames than do military measures. Treating terrorists as criminals raises the question of the utility of the tactical definition in legal practice. Against its use is the understandable reluctance of the state to make distinctions about violence used against it from within. As already noted, the state sees itself as having a monopoly on the legitimate use of violence uh, within its domain, and so is resistant to admitting that individual citizens, or still worse, sub-state groups, could in any sense legitimately resort to violence against it. This resistance encompasses both the legitimacy of cause and of means. As to cause, it's understandable that the state, whether democratic or dictatorial, will dismiss the idea that revolutionary or reformist violence could be legitimately or even excusably used against it, even though outsider states and individuals may think otherwise. My concern here, however, is less with this issue than that of distinguishing means, since it's crucial to the tactical definition. The first point to make is that differentiating violence against the state into different categories does not itself create a problem for the state's instinct to treat all such violence as illegitimate. Even if the violence of this sort is illegitimate, and those who admit just revolutions will deny that this is necessarily the case, there may be some types of violence that are less wrong than others and merit different legal treatment. Although the topic of mercy killing is controversial, there seems a difference of moral category between mercy killing that is effectively assisted suicide and the murder of a kidnapped child who is no longer valued by the kidnappers when the ransom has been paid. Even when treating both such cases as violations of law, there's no reason why the legal processes should not acknowledge the significance of such differences, at least at the point of sentencing and perhaps in other ways. Similarly, consider the difference between prison escapees who shoot and kill an armed prison guard who is shooting at them while they're attempting to escape and similar escapees who deliberately shoot and kill innocent bystanders in order to distract their pursuers. There's a case for regarding the latter as a more heinous, more heinous crime, even though both are murders. If so, it should be possible to treat political violence directed at state agents and agencies that can intelligibly be viewed as opposing forces by those whose grievance leads them to violence in a quite different way from political violence that is manipulatively directed at people who are in no sense opposing forces. Both may be wrong, but they're different wrongs and could very well receive different treatment in domestic law. I said that in the example of the prison escapee there was a case for regarding the intentional shooting of innocent bystanders uh, as more grave than killing a prison guard by returning fire. Against this, it may be argued that the state has a special interest in safeguarding those who enforce its laws and so should treat the killing of state officials as more grievous than the killing of ordinary citizens. Certainly the, the state needs to be vigilant in defence of those charged with the sometimes dangerous duty of enforcing the laws and protecting the public, at least where those laws are just and the relevant public deserves protection. But such vigilance need not involve rejection of the point I made, and that for two reasons. First, 
The vigilant attitude is consistent with there being a requirement <coughs> for an even more powerful condemnation of such atrocities as the child killing in my example. Second, it should be remembered that there are a range of cases that can fall under the heading of killing of state officials, and some will be more grievous than others. In a famous case in Australia known as the Walsh Street murders, two young Victorian police constables were lured to a Melbourne suburban street in October 1988 on the report of an abandoned car, then ambushed and shot to death by a group of criminals. The killings were apparently undertaken as revenge for an earlier fatal police shooting of a gang member that was widely viewed by the underworld and many beyond the underworld as an illegal execution. The case created great community concern, the case of the constables, and even greater police outrage, and several career criminals suspected of involvement in the Wall Street crime were subsequently shot and killed by police in controversial circumstances. The callous killing of the two constables, indeed, was a horrible crime, but very different from the example of the escapees mentioned above. Indeed, the two young constables might, might well be regarded as innocent if they were in no way involved in the earlier police killing, and this is certainly how they were portrayed uh, in the media and various outraged commentaries. A further consideration about legal practicality is that whatever the problems of implementing the tactical definition into law and policing, they create no more difficulties than the existing legislation, the existing legal definitions, as we'll see. Indeed, their relative precision contrasts usefully with the sweeping vagaries of such definitions as the UK <coughs> Act which you have before you. This brings us to the more general question of how to deal with terrorist attacks. A striking feature of the response to the Islamic militant uh, terrorist attacks on Western homelands has been the deployment of military metaphors and military realities in counter-terrorist measures. They have, not, they have not been the only forms of response, of course, but they've had a significant role uh, from the slogan, War on Terror, to the invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the, uh, I remember Michael Walzer saying to me in conversation that the uh, United States was, was obsessed with wars on one thing or another, wars on poverty, wars on drugs, and now wars on terror, and they've been signally unsuccessful uh, in, in uh, managing to lose the first two, and we're now on the way to losing the third. Uh, and I think there's some wisdom in that remark. Moreover, employment of the military to deal with terrorism is not new, of course, as witness the British Army's involvement in Northern Ireland. A full discussion of the merits of this sort of response uh, is beyond uh, the time I have available, but I think that overall the record of such military ventures is not encouraging, either in terms of success or in terms of the licence it's given for governments to deploy military force against mostly spurious terrorist threats, as in Chechnya and, more recently, uh, in the Middle East, uh, not to mention the Urgars in China. I shall merely mention some of the problems with the military approach in discussing other approaches below. There seem to be basically at least four such non-military approaches. One, domestic legal and regulatory measures, especially those introduced specifically to deal with terrorism. Two, international legal and regulatory measures. Three, diplomatic measures, both internal and external. Four, removing the grievance. There is some overlap between these categories, but it's still useful to distinguish them. I'll examine the pros and cons of each, though I'll concentrate 
uh, more heavily upon the first. All of these uh, uh, four have the primary advantage over heavily military measures that they do not involve a commitment to killing and maiming on a large or relatively large scale. That looks like a big plus. If the Iraq war was supposed to stem terrorist killing of Americans at home, as some apologists argued, then it's done so on a dubiously optimistic concession to its supporters at the cost of more Americans killed than died in the 9-11 attacks, more than 100,000 Iraqi civilians killed, many more wounded, dispossessed and self-exiled, an economy and social order badly damaged for many years, and a great increase in terrorist activities in Iraq itself, still continuing uh, now. Somewhat similar considerations apply to Afghanistan. Measures 1 to 4 involve none of this. At worst, their failure may lead to many deaths in terrorist attacks that are not prevented. But in contrast to military attacks, such deaths are not inevitable, and no measure can guarantee success, certainly not full-scale military measures, as Afghanistan and Iraq in their different ways show. Nor is it clear, to say the least, that the Iraq and Afghanistan invasions have prevented further attacks upon nations outside Iraq and Afghanistan. Indeed, they've clearly played a part in provoking such attacks since 2001. By contrast, legal and policing measures, in spite of their problems to be discussed, actually seem to have been successful in preventing terrorist attacks, though the extent of their success is difficult to determine. Diplomatic efforts, including some removal of grievance, have also had some conspicuous successes, as eventually in Northern Ireland. This presents a good case in favour of one to four, but they have downsides and we need to assess them and assess each category to measure them against the others. In doing so, we need to bear in mind the background facts that I outlined at the beginning of this discussion, uh, particularly that concerning the innate tendency of great power to be abused and corrupt. Re one, there are many problems with legal measures, some of which carry over to two. Those involving the criminal law, and they are the main ones likely to have an appropriate rationale, can be threatening to significant civil liberties within the state enacting them and are arguably superfluous. There is a further question about their effectiveness. There is also the fact that they're stretching the scope of the criminal law. They, they tend to stretch, stretch the scope of the criminal law in dramatic and some respects uh, alarming ways. Some of these effects can be traced to incautious wording and also to the influence of what I've called political status definitions. The UK Terrorism Act 2000, with its subsequent amendments, is typical in this respect, as in its blurring of various important distinctions. Although its vague and far-reaching language makes its scope somewhat unclear, it's plain that violence or the threat of it against governments is central to what it seeks to prohibit with the term terrorism. To summarise its convoluted sections and subsections, it counts as terrorist subject to a proviso noted below, those actions that involve either serious violence against a person or property, or endanger the lives of persons other than the actor, or, cre or quote, create a serious risk to the health or safety of the public or a section of the public, or are, quote, designed seriously to interfere with or seriously to disrupt an electronic system. Let us call these the primary actions. Primary actions are terrorist, provided only that they are, firstly, quote, designed to influence the government or an international governmental organisation or to intimidate the public or a section of the public, unquote. And secondly, the use or threat is made for the purpose of advancing a political, religious, racial or ideological cause, unquote. 
in a curious additional clause. However, the first part of this proviso is withdrawn for certain acts <coughs> by, um, by, by exempting from its governance, the governance of the first proviso about uh, influencing a government and intimidating, intimidating the public and so on, by exempting from its governments any use of firearms or explosives to perform one or other of what I've called the primary actions. Someone who has a political grievance against a ramshackle, disused governmental building structure that impinges upon his land in some significant way and who has been unsuccessful in seeking redress through normal channels may be foolish and reprehensible if he vents his frustration by blowing up the offending edifice but it seems contrary to common sense to treat him as a terrorist. This curious clause, depending what's meant by serious and ele electronic system, might also make a terrorist of someone who is enraged with some aspects of government regulation of telecommunication services and so shoots his or another's telephone, television set or computer with a licensed rifle, thus seriously damaging an electronic system in order to make a political statement. Leaving aside the doubtful effects of this additional clause, we can see that the definition restricts the idea of a terrorist act to acts of violence or serious coercive behaviour by sub-state agents fundamentally aiming to influence government policy. This pro-state bias extends even to criminalising as terrorists within the United Kingdom of such acts directed against governments anywhere in the world, no matter what their political complexion or their oppressive practices. This is made clear in an explanatory note to the definitions. Uh, explanatory note D, I'm not sure if that's on your uh, handout. Uh, the government, the explanatory note says, means the government of the United Kingdom, of a part of the United Kingdom, or of a country other than the United Kingdom. This would make terrorists of Burmese dissidents defending themselves with arms against brutal attacks by government forces and would ret retrospectively count as terrorists Jewish armed resistance to Nazi troops in the Warsaw Ghetto, as long as such troops could be viewed as representing a foreign government, or French resistors attacking German military facilities, but would rule out as terrorists any violent acts against civilians committed by Russian troops in Chechnya, Serbian troops in Kosovo, or government troops in apartheid South Africa. It would also again mean that the American uh, Revolution of Independence consisted wholly of terrorist acts. In fact, the stress on sub-state agents as exclusive perpetrators of terrorist acts is strongly implicit in the legislation rather than openly declared, so it's possible to read its provisions as going beyond sub-state agents and covering one government's violent acts against another, in which case the 2011 military interventions by Western governments in support of Libyan rebels would be terrorist. It's unlikely that that's the intent of the legislation. Though a, con though a consequence, I think, of its imprecise wording. The Act's inclusion in the primary actions of serious disruption or interference with an electronic system is highly problematic and will be further discussed below. No less a person than Britain's top prosecutor, the former Director of Public Prosecutions, Sir Ken MacDonald, warned of some of these risks and realities in his final speech before leaving office at the end of 2008. He claimed that centuries of British civil liberties were at risk from the relentless pressure of the security state. He referred to various anti-terrorism measures and proposals as the paraphernalia, paraphernalia of paranoia. After the defeat of the British Labor government in 2010, Macdonald was appointed to provide independent oversight, independent oversight to review 
of, uh, to the review then made of the country's counter-terrorism and security powers by the Office for Security and Counter-Terrorism in the Home Office, and his oversight report was published in uh, early 2011. In it, he says, the promise of total security is an illusion that would destroy everything that makes living worthwhile. Some risks are worth running in order to enjoy liberty. And there's more of him which I'll omit at this point. Of course, the interpretation of the law by judges is sometimes proof against the pressure for more prosecutorial uh, powers and discretions. This was shown in 2010 during proceedings in uh, Britain by six British residents. Sorry, I should move that. This was shown in 2010 during proceedings in Britain by six British residents who claimed that the British government was complicit in their having been tortured and secretly transferred to Guantanamo Bay. They sued the government for abuse and wrongful imprisonment. The secret agencies of MI5 and MI6 urged the courts to suppress a great deal of evidence from the plaintiffs and the public and to make it available only to a judge and specially appointed and vetted counsel. But the Court of Appeal rejected this procedure as tantamount to, quote, undermining one of the common law's most fundamental principles. The judges insisted that it was essential, quote, a litigant should be able to see and hear all the evidence which is seen and heard by a court <coughs> determining his case. Subsequently, the British authorities decided not to appeal further and the plaintiffs were bought off with huge taxpayer-funded compensation settlements. We must not, however, assume that the judiciary will always be a barrier to bad procedures and malpractice uh, in the context of terrorism, heartening as this particular example is. The poor record of even very distinguished judges during the 1970s IRA terror alarms in the Birmingham 6, Guildford 4 and Maguire 7 trials shows that public outrage, political pressure and panic can reach to the highest levels of the law. Another problem, a further problem with anti-terrorism laws is that the widening of police and other state powers that they involve presents a permanent temptation to use them or powers associated with them against persons other than terrorists. This parallels on the international stage the way that oppressive governments quickly invoke anti-terrorist rhetoric in order to resort readily to military or political violence against non-terrorist protesters, as in Egypt, Libya and Syria. The UK Terrorist Act 2000, as discussed earlier in connection with definitions, includes in its primary actions a reference to serious disruption or interference with electronic systems, whether or not it involves violence. But this would seem to make terrorists of Rupert Murdoch's crew at the News of the World, given only that some of their hacking was designed to have a degree of influence on the government. This outcome might be welcome in some quarters, but surely distorts our understanding of terrorism and unduly extends the scope of severe anti-terrorist penalties and emergency investigative techniques. Even more alarmingly, the clause about electronic systems would criminalise as terrorists those dissidents in ty tyrannical regimes who hack into the phones or computers of government torturers or secret police to get information that will enable them to expose government malpractice and persecution in order to reform or remove the regime. Other aspects of the Terrorist Act, notably those concerning wide powers of search and arrest in Section 44 and related sections that have been criticised by Sir Ken Macdonald and others, have been used in absurd and disturbing ways, as in the case of the photographic artist Reuben Powell, who was arrested in 2009 for photograph photographing the old 
HMSO print works located near a police station in London. Powell was handcuffed and spent five hours in a cell after police seized the lock blade knife he used to sharpen his pencils. His release only came after the intervention of the local MP, Simon Hughes, but not before his genetic material had been stored permanently on the DNA database. Another problem about the use of legal measures against terrorism concerns the scope and use of legislation that is not specifically geared to counter terrorism but has been motivated by anxiety about terrorism. The extradition processes in the United Kingdom, for example, have come under criticism in recent years because of their connection with the European arrest warrant, a legal instrument that was introduced by a European decision made just one week after the attacks of September the 11th, 2001. It was promoted to the public as a way of ensuring cross-border cohesion in prosecuting terrorists and other serious criminals across Europe. Since then, it's been increasingly used to extradite people for alleged offences that are either trivial or not criminal offences in Britain. The extradition proceedings against Julian Assange have highlighted some of the problems of these processes, but there have been even more startling examples. A notable instance discussed in The Guardian's op-ed pages in December 2010 concerned a Polish man, Jacek Jaskolski, a disabled 58-year-old science teacher living in the UK since 2004, who was sought for extradition to Poland over a 10-year-old offence of having overdrawn his bank account. The bank recovered the money and there was no allegation of dishonesty. In Britain, such a case would at most involve civil proceedings, but the desperate desire for new legislation to deal with terrorism has played a part in bringing about this absurd situation, not to mention other absurdities, such as the 2008 extradition to Poland of a man who had stolen a dessert from a Polish restaurant. Democratic politics, partly because of its very responsiveness to public feeling and opinion, has a tendency to react to any new crisis by passing a law. Sometimes the relevant law is a good one, but often it's not, since its primary purpose or effect is to assure the public that the political leadership is doing something. Often those who exercise power under the new laws, police and security agencies, especially in a climate of heightened suspicion and anxiety, will stretch the interpretation of the law. Moreover, once enacted, such gut reaction legislation has a strong tendency to stay on the books, whatever its defects. All this suggests the virtue of an adaptation of Occam's razor to the criminal law. Do not multiply laws without necessity. Many of the problems that arise with the employment of the criminal law in connection with terrorist acts are created by the fact that the primary aim of this employment is direct prevention of crime rather than punishment, reform, deterrence or communication. One British account of the rationale for anti-terrorist lawmaking talks of the four Ps, pursuit, prevent, protect and prepare. Of these, the protecting and preparing are themselves prevention oriented, where pursuit is more related to capture of those who've performed terrorist acts. It would be wrong to see prevention as an entirely new element in lawmaking and law enforcement, since such things as restraining orders, consorting laws, and laws against attempts and conspiracy have a preventive rationale, at least in part. Nonetheless, the rationale is central to a great deal of anti-terrorism legislation in ways that are sometimes more tenuous than in the cases just mentioned. The criminalising of attempts is partly aimed at preventing their outcomes, but the attempts themselves involve actions that are directly aimed at producing full-blooded crimes, so that they are, in a sense, 
those crimes already in process of enactment. Restraining orders and restrictions on associating usually arise from crimes or wrongs already committed, assaults, threats, harassment, and likely to be committed again. Conspiracy is somewhat different, but for that reason, the reach of this crime has often been viewed with some suspicion by Liberals and others who are anxious about the misuse of state power. The primary drive of anti-terrorism legislation is towards prevention broadly considered. One of the problems once more relates to the definition of terrorism and the terrorist group. Most definitions in the legal campaign in different countries are broader than the tactical definition and even where the concerns of the tactical definition are taken into account to some degree, the various offences related to support for or encouragement of terrorist groups or organisations are dangerously broad. Where, de where the definitions encompass all acts of political violence against governments, including governments overseas, and they never reach to acts of political violence by governments, then they, then they potentially criminalise intellectual or financial support and encouragement of resistance movements that many people plausibly consider legitimate, as in former times the ANC struggle against apartheid, much of which, though by no means all, was non-terrorist in the tactical sense. Another example would be support for Burmese dissidents, as I've mentioned already, forcefully defending their homes from rapacious government forces. These are examples where the tactical definition of terrorism, even if not explicitly embodied in the law, could be a beneficial influence in determining the nature of anti-terrorism laws or in restricting their scope. It might, for instance, produce more caution about what groups are to be designated terrorist organisations or what defences are available to those who support such organisations. Although the various legislations in different jurisdictions have many points of divergence, there is a great deal of overlap and there is a general problem with the wide scope of preventive measures and the language used to codify them. Notions like facilitate, promote, support, encourage or possession of information useful to terrorism, uh, all these are in the UK Terrorism Act, especially sections 3 and 12, show an understandable anxiety to forestall terrorist acts, even to forestall the very possibility of them, but they are alarmingly open to abuse. As I remarked in the first lecture, apropos a clause in the application form that I had to fill in for a UK visa, a philosophy, philosophy article offering a limited case for terrorism, or even examining in an objective way plausible arguments for terrorist acts, could easily come under such headings as information useful to terrorism, assuming that terrorists had the time and uh, uh, energy to read such stuff. Uh, the UK Act even, even proscribes inviting some member of an organisation deemed to be a terrorist group to give a talk or assist in the organisation of such a talk. Admittedly, it's a defence to show that you had no reason to believe that the Speaker's address would, quote, support a prescribed organisation or further its activities, unquote. But if some academic invited a significant member of Hamas, for instance, to give a talk on the organisation's political goals, it's barely possible that an inviter could fail to realise that the Speaker, in the course of his explanations, would very likely seek to defend its activities in ways that nullify this defence. Do we really want to limit debate in this sort of way? 
Of course, one might hope that common sense would prevail at the level of implementing such laws, but liberal democratic societies should not rely too much on such hopes. Part of the problem of framing criminal laws to deal with politically motivated violence is that the framing of new laws or the stretched use of existing laws invariably takes place in an atmosphere of heightened fear or even panic. <coughs> this atmosphere has the understandable effect on politicians, especially democratically elected politicians, that they don't want to be seen to have been remiss in dealing with future threats. They live in apprehension that if a terrorist event occurs, they will be blamed for not having prevented it. These are reactions, though understandable, that often make for bad laws, bad policy and bad policing of laws. This was abundantly illustrated in the Mohammed Hanif fiasco in Australia a couple of years ago, where a terrorist attack on the other side of the world uh, at Glasgow Airport produced an arrest, lengthy detention and then aborted prosecution of an innocent man for, the all, for what always seemed a trivial offence and turned out to be no offence at all. Hanif, an Indian doctor working in Brisbane, had a relative in Britain who was supposed to have some connection with one of the suspects in the Glasgow incident, or at least so British police believed. He was believed to have given his phone SIM card to his cousin in England, whose brother was one of the perpetrators of the Glasgow airport attempted bombing. British police mistakenly reported that the card had been found at the terrorist scene. In the course of this sad process, the court was profoundly misled on central facts by the prosecution. The public was asked to trust the authorities that secret information would justify the process. The character of the, of the accused was besmirched by government ministers and bail for him was effectively set aside by the intervention of the then Conservative coalition, Coalition's Minister for Immigration, who apparently acting on more secret information, cancelled Hanif's visa, which meant that he couldn't get bail. All this, and much more mischief impacting on Hanif, occurred after the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation, <coughs> our equivalent of the CIA, advised early in a report, either ignored or not seen by the Minister, that there was no evidence whatever against Hanif. The preventive imperative not only can involve the clumsy implementation or outright misuse of old or new laws, but can also support governmental resort to non-military policy measures that violate existing laws. The United States government, for instance, secretly instituted surveillance phone hacking techniques on US citizens without any of the required legal warrants, at least as early as 2002, even though these were in clear contradiction of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The National Security Agency used the major telecommunication agencies to tap vast numbers of private communications of US citizens in the name of anti-terrorism. The program was exposed in 2005 by the New York Times, but President Bush defended the policy and was openly defiant of charges that it breached the clear letter of the law. He and his associates argued that the Patriot Act virtually placed the President above the law, another act which is spurred by terrorism. Civil legal proceedings were brought against the telecommunication companies that had palpably broken the Pfizer law and several others in complying with government requests for access to their clients' phones, so a campaign was mounted to exempt them retrospectively from the provisions of the law, a campaign that was eventually successful. Various amending and supplementing legislation regarding Pfizer 
has been since enacted that seems to give the government increased powers of surveillance while maintaining a semblance of external supervision. But such is the secrecy surrounding the relevant activities of the National Security Agency that it's hard to know how extensive or how illegal current surveillance of citizens remains. There are many other examples in different parts of the world of the disadvantages that the law faces in dealing with the real or imagined threat of terrorism. These range from the British police shooting dead an innocent man that they misidentified to the numerous squalid detentions in Guantanamo Bay, the revival of torture techniques in democracies and the victimisations of extraordinary renditions. Moreover, the constant consternation caused by the terrorist attacks of September 11 resulted in the arrest of thousands of suspects in the United States, very few of whom have been found to have terrorist connections even after lengthy periods of detention. Finally, diplomacy and removing the, the grievance. Did I not put that one up? Um, for reasons of time, I shall have to be brief in dealing with response three and four, diplomacy and removing the grievance. Although these have obvious advantages at first blush, they can, uh, they can be eliminated or much diminished as possibilities by some ways of regarding terrorism. At the extreme, if terrorism can be seen as deranged, as one reading of the idea of indiscriminate violence, which I don't use in my definition, may encourage, then there's no room to engage diplomatically with terrorists, with groups using terrorism, or with states that encourage or promote terrorist acts. The mantra no negotiation with terrorists partly encapsulates this outlook, though it also has an instrumental rationale concerned with not encouraging further terrorism, a rationale that I don't find decisive and which is often enough abandoned via secret negotiations. The paths of diplomacy and of removing grievances which can intersect are also impeded by concentration on the account of terrorist motivation mentioned earlier in discussing Scheffler's version of the distinctive moral wrong of terrorism. This was something we discussed in the first lecture. As noted then, that emphasis, which is an emphasis on the intent to destabilise or degrade the existing social order, which uh, uh, Scheffler thinks is uh, integral and the really significant thing about terrorist acts. Naturally, that's terrorist acts by sub-state agents. Uh, in the case, he acknowledges that, unfortunately, the state engages in a great deal of uh, such stuff, and it's not aiming usually to destabilise the, existing, the existing order, it's aiming to defend it. So he says that's not terrorism, that's terror. And uh, this is for the benefit of those who weren't here for the earlier discussion, uh, thereby dismissing a large number of obvious counterexamples to his thesis. Anyway, as noted then, this emphasis on the intent to destabilise or degrade the existing social order makes the perpetrators of terrorism seem quite removed from the category of enemies with whom one could negotiate about the specific grievances, for instance, which awful lot of them actually have. Of course, a good deal turns on what such destabilisation or degradation is supposed to mean, and Scheffler's quite unforthcoming on this. But it seems to involve such massive damage that there's nothing that could be yielded to such adversaries. But where the enemy has quite specific objectives, such as removing foreign settlements on what he regards as his land, or forcing an occupying power to leave, or getting prisoners released, there is clearly much more room for concessions, even if such concessions remain politically difficult. Much will turn on how legitimate the terrorist grievances are, or how plausible a case they can make for those grievances, even where they remain controversial. 
All compromise and most negotiation involves risk and the prospect of a serious degree of loss for both parties. But that's part of the nature of politics and terrorism and counter-terrorism exist within the domain of politics as well as that of morality and law. The two great English political philosophers near the beginning of, modern, of the modern political era, Thomas Hobbes and John Locke, were both concerned with the need to control violence, animosity and power, though their methods differed in ways that exhibit the tension discernible in current governmental responses to the threat of terrorism. Hobbes thought that the awful effects of natural tendencies to violence and domination uh, could be controlled by an all-powerful sovereign endowed with the sole right of the sword and empowered to make laws that the sovereign was effectively above and constrained only by regard for the natural law promulgated by God. By contrast, Locke was aware that such untrammeled sovereign power itself poses dangers, even possibly greater dangers, to human security and natural rights. Consequently, Locke thought that citizens had rights, including the right of revolution, against the sovereign, who was also under the law, and that protections against the abuse of sovereign power were needed. Plainly commenting on Hobbes's doctrine of sovereignty without explicitly naming him, Locke says, This is to think that men are so foolish that they take care to avoid what mischiefs may be done to them by polecats or foxes, but are content, they think it's safety, to be devoured by lions. In the face of serious terrorist attacks, the pressure for greater and greater legal, and often enough illegal, measures in the name of national security poses the very danger that concerned Locke. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, so thanks for the, the discussion. I guess I wanted to clarify something. Um, well, whether you thought there was this uh, important difference in terms of counterterrorism versus counter-criminal. Yeah. So just an easy comparison. Uh, Mexican criminal cartels, there have been a lot of massacres. Um, you know, the very definition, they're not terrorists. Um, a lot of all civilians yeah. have died yeah. from it. You can compare that to a uh, you know, sub-state group that did similar massacres for a state for a Politically, yeah, yeah. would you think that uh, differential actions are justified on the grounds that there are, putting practical prosecution aside, on the grounds that there is this political motive that differentiates terrorism? And yeah, yeah. Well, I think what I was trying to say in that discussion of the um, whether they should, terrorists should be treated as criminals or as um, uh, combatants, and the connection of that with military or non-military means for <coughs> dealing with them. Uh, was that an, an awful lot of it uh, uh, sorry yes that um, uh, that there's no there's not a, a simple yes or no answer in the case of uh, terrorism anyway uh, because uh, the different uh, situations that uh, may arise uh, may call for one or other treatment I generally much prefer with all their faults, the non-military techniques for the reason I've given. But of course there can be contexts in which the military are the only people who can deal with this sort of thing. You know, a, um, uh, I gave the example of the hostage-taking thing, but there, there could be other sorts of cases similar to that where you say you just need a lot more uh, firepower we've got beyond negotiations and so on. Uh, and I think something similar 
uh, would, could be said about the non-terrorist uh, situation. Uh, again, it's um, uh, violent uh, criminal behaviour of one sort or another should be dealt with in the standard way, but if the criminals are organised in such a huge fashion as the, uh, the, the criminals in, uh, in Colombia, various parts of uh, South America are, uh, what happened, and, and, and the state's uh, apparatus for dealing with things is so reduced in all sorts of ways, uh, it may well be that there has to be resort, recourse to military measures to deal with them. Uh, I didn't say that they weren't uh, terrorists. I, what I said was in the cases where they do have clear political objectives or even rough political objectives, uh, the border between the political and the criminal becomes obscured. Uh, and that certainly happened in some of the South American cases where they've actually, um, like the FARC, have a, have a kind of political program. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's by and large, as far as I can understand, it's a fairly bizarre one. And uh, what's happened in recent years is, is that it's, um, it's diminished in importance. They've turned more and more into basically criminal gangs, I think, from a group that did have a political agenda of a strange kind, but one that, you know couched in Marxist terms and so on. Um, so it just depends an awful lot, I think, on the, on the context with that. But, of course, if, if there's a way of policing a situation, bringing you know, standard laws to bear upon it uh, within, the, within the country, then that's a lot better thing to do, whether they're terrorists or not. Anybody else? Don't tell me I'm getting away with it altogether this time. <laughs> Henry. Well, you made uh, dealing with terrorists through the criminal process sound pretty scary. <laughs> and mm. I agree uh, that there are a lot of ways they can go wrong. But, but of course, dealing with it militarily can be pretty yes. scary, too. So I, my impression is a lot of U.S. policy now consists of covert executions of alleged yes. terrorists one way or, or another. Um, do you have any thoughts about sort of the lengths to which one ought to go to try to capture people rather than just execute them? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm very um, concerned about the targeted assassination uh, program that the, that the US has. Um, their, um, their response to the suggestion, uh, I'm speculating what uh, Obama would say about this, uh, but since both of us have read Aquinas and uh, uh, St. Augustine, uh, there may be some, I may be able to get into his mind to some extent. I think what he, he probably, I'd say, is that it's just, I mean, if, if he were trying to give a serious defence rather than support his political base and so on, that um, uh, the difficulties of uh, arrest and so on in a foreign country uh, where there's an immense amount of instability, and I'm thinking of Pakistan, uh, and the reach of the law is, is you know, um, tenuous. Um, the difficulties of, the, of this just precluded it as an option. Uh, now, I'm not sure that's true. It's pretty clear they've not tried uh, anyway, I think, isn't it? I mean, I, as I understand it, this route has just not been tried. But I think that's the kind of defence. And one can imagine situations in which that's true. And then the question is, is uh, targeted uh, assassination 
given that all sorts of background conditions are satisfied, which are very hard to satisfy, like the epistemological questions about uh, is this the right guy, uh, and the collateral damage questions, which you know, are very significant indeed in, in, uh, if, if drones are being used, and, and other ways that have been used. Given all that you know, has been reasonably satisfied, uh, the argument would be that, that the killing of this guy who has been identified as actually an agent of aggression of, of the um, supposed terrorist kind, uh, and let's suppose it is, uh, that's better than going in with um, massive bombing uh, campaigns against uh, the area in which that fellow lives, uh, or with sending in a team of your own people to get him. Now certainly it's better than the bombing thing, I think, whether it's better than um, sending in a, a team to capture him is another thing. Many people believe that um, that Osama bin Laden could have been captured by the team that the that the Americans sent in, and that they never intended to capture him at all. Uh, I just don't know what what the facts are about that. Uh, but uh, uh, I mean, I don't want to rule out the possibility that military force of one sort or another. Uh, that's that's fairly limited uh, might work for some terrorist cases. I mean, I think, for instance, the recent British thing uh, where they uh, uh, freed uh, freed three, was it, hostages just the other day um, uh, and none of the hostages were killed. I mean, one of the problems with the military thing of rescuing hostages is that very often the hostages get killed, but apparently this thing was was done as far as you can tell um, very effectively but it involved killing a lot of the people who'd taken them hostage um, it's hard to argue against that I think uh, if uh, if it's true that, that they know about the thing that these are really the hostages and that there's no way of dealing with it otherwise I mean often there's a, there are negotiated ways of dealing with it uh, I think in this particular case the, um, uh, the people who captured these people uh, wanted money, didn't they? I don't think it was a heavily political thing. It was a sort of criminal thing more. Uh, and maybe, maybe the saner answer to that is actually pay up, which is what is often done, you know, behind the scenes and so on. Yeah. One of the problems with like capture is it can be quite dangerous for the people asked to do the capture. To do the so thing, yeah. One argument for this is, you know, we owe it to our own people. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And that's and that's a consideration, I think. But on the other hand. Um, given that given that it is a uh, morally preferable course of action, the, the military are in the business of being put into danger and um, uh, if the alternative methods are ruled out and that looks I mean if, if the level of danger is so great that the mission is bound to be a failure anyway or a failure at far too a success at far too great a cost, I suppose that's got to be factored in too. But I think there's a sort of, there's been, up to a point, there's been a, this mindset developed uh, in the affluent, civilised, leave out civilised, in the affluent uh, countries, uh, that, that they shouldn't put their people at any sort of risk. And famously in the intervention in Serbia, uh, this was such, especially such a great thing about it and so on, but to the point where people like uh, Ignatiev were predicting uh, that uh, cost-free warfare was going to be the... Uh, the thing in future uh, and of course that hasn't proved to be the case and it's turned out that uh, 
the United States at any rate, is willing to uh, risk the lives of an enormous number of their, of their troops in these massive uh, kind of wars rather, rather. So it's a bit odd if they're going to fall back on that thing with the, uh, a particular narrow intervention. Isn't part of the problem with uh, uh, capturing and trying people in, uh, rather than assassinating them, particularly in Afghanistan, that in, in Afghanistan you're dealing with people you know, we label terrorists mm. but who carry arms, they're trained as soldiers, they're fighting yeah. for the most part against other armed yes, soldiers. Yes, yes. Uh, and you know, look very much like combatants in, in regular yeah, warfare. Yeah. So it might be difficult to uh, establish that you shouldn't just apply uh, regular prisoner yeah. of war standards once you've captured them, and maybe that's inconvenient uh, for the Americans. Uh, capturing them and... Uh, and, and then having them as prisoners of yes. war. Well, I mean... Uh, I think that law and morality are supposed to overrule inconvenience, aren't they? I, mean, I, I think it probably is inconvenient. I mean, there are famous dilemmas in the discussion of you know, um, uh, military ethics um, about what you do if you, you know, you're storming a hill uh, and it's a terribly difficult um, terrain and the enemy are entrenched and bang, bang and so on, and you get past one thing and a guy surrenders at this point. And you've got to get up to the next thing in a hurry. Uh, and what do you do about him, you know? And uh, the sort of case that we're talking about, the one you raised, not really like that. I mean, that's a more, this is a more extreme, dilemma-ish type uh, example, you know, and uh, it gets much debated. Um, the, if you, I mean, my, my inclination with that is to say, if, if you can't actually hold him because you've got to press on, uh, you should totally disarm him uh, and then leave him, you know. Or, or if you can tie him up or something, do that, you know. But this, the, the usual suggestion of the example is, well, you shoot him in cold blood, you know. Uh, and you're terribly sad and, you know, you've got dirty hands and so on, but uh, uh, that's the thing. Um, well, I don't want to... I don't want to demean, you know, the reality of, of, uh, of difficult life in combat, but sometimes the example is presented in that kind of way. Yeah, Chaney. I want to raise a question about uh, Weber's notion of the state yeah. that I think will bear on what you're saying in a way that will support it, but having not been here at the earlier lecture, I'm oh, you're, cautious about you're, that. you're excused. Yeah. Um, the, uh, with regret. Yeah. With regret. <laughs> Um, Weber's definition has been challenged by people, yeah. and in particular uh, by people who say that it doesn't apply to the United States. Um, really? The argument is that um, uh, in the United States, certainly the, the state does not have a physical monopoly on violence because of the right to bear arms. Yes. Uh, and furthermore, that in the United States, uh, the, the further claim would be it doesn't even have a, a monopoly on the authority to exercise violence because people can use arms uh, without the permission of the state. Yes. Uh, and in fact, finally, some people would say that that's what gives force to the right to revolution is that if the state loses its legitimacy, then the people have the right to use their arms to, to overthrow it. So the notion that states have monopoly and that all equals legitimate mm. and non-state actors are therefore out of 
the ordinary and illegitimate uh, simply does not um, apply to a country like the United States. And therefore, the attempt to distinguish between terrorists and non-terrorists in terms of whether they're state actors or non-state actors, that, that, that kind of loses, it, loses its yeah. force. Yeah. And I would say I think this is important to some of the history of violence in the United States. And, 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 and it seems to me, keeping talking about what you're saying, because it, I, what I understand you're sort of saying is we have to look at sort of what the nature of the violence is and whether it's oh, yeah, against innocence and worry less about who's carrying it yeah, out. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I wasn't endorsing, I, wasn't, I should make it clearer, I wasn't endorsing what Weber said. I, I've always thought it very doubtful. I, not, I hadn't thought of you know, the peculiar position of the United States, which, which does give a lot of... Uh, uh, counterexample weight to to the thing. Um, I was merely citing it because it has this powerful psychological uh, effect on the rulers themselves. I mean, I think it's the way the way they think about the use of violence by others, uh, and hence that feeds into this the sloppy way they keep do, putting out these definitions and the rules and all the rest of it. Uh, in fact, I don't. Uh, you don't need the United States. I mean, it seems to me perfectly clear uh, that uh, if somebody's life is endangered and there are, there's no access to police and all the rest of it uh, in, in uh, an ordinary uh, state, uh, and uh, the only thing they can say, even better, somebody else's life is endangered uh, by a, a, a criminal. Uh, who's bent upon killing this person, and you can actually stop that person by violence, maybe short of killing, <coughs> but, but certainly violence, bashing him over the head or something. Uh, this is A, morally perfectly legitimate, and B, in the civil law would be legitimate. Uh, the criminal law would be, would be a legitimate defence. I mean, there's, um, so it's, it's not true even in the most you know, um, yeah. uncomplicated societies. The United States is very complicated by the uh, you know the right to bear arms and these other sorts of, and by the terribly um, uh, what's the word loose or, or expansive uh, definition of or understanding of self-defence that they use. You know where where chaps can shoot fellows who, who just came came in their front gate without permission and so on. That's a slight exaggeration, but not much. Uh, yeah. I, I was just, just a comment. I mean, the, the, what you're saying is is, is it's interesting to me because, partly because I've thought that the United States um, is very schizophrenic on the, even the domestic terrorism thing. Um, you have um, uh, John Brown, who is yes. clearly a terrorist, yes. uh, who was, uh, by some people's view, the most admired American of the 19th century next to Abraham Lincoln. Yes, yes. Um, but then you also have this thing, that what they call the vigilante tradition, uh, uh, which has a sort of this Ku Klux Klan... Uh, the lynching, like the lynching thing, yeah. And, and, and in some sense, um, uh, it's, it's one of the reasons why, I mean, you said that it's ironic that America would take the position of us having emerged in a revolution. Yeah. It's also ironic that it would take the position of does have this long history of celebrating essentially forms of yes, yes. No, that's a very good point. One side or another. Yeah, that's a very good point. No, I, sh I should, I should incorporate. <coughs> I should make it clear. I'm only just using the Weber thing as a sort of prop for understanding yeah, no, uh, the background psychology. Yeah. Great, so I wanted to ask about um, the difference between the 
domestic political costs and civil liberties. Uh, yeah. And, and as I mentioned, most people are inclined to be sympathetic to your worries about yeah. putting on civil liberties or the absurdities of criminal justice when it attempts inexpertly to deal with um, terrorist suspects. But I wonder if there's an argument you made that ultimately these sorts of things are just costs that have to be borne. That ultimately there, there's a greater good that's being pursued here. And what I'm thinking of something like this, yeah. because to the extent that terrorists are aiming at subverting a form of democratic free debate by using the threat of violence to change the terms of that debate and change people's deliberative decision making, terrorism presents a particular kind of threat to the nature of the democratic society itself. Mm. And therefore, because of this particular form of threat to deliberative democracy, it, the special kind of thing that has to be stopped disproportionately to how many lives it costs or the property damage or whatever. It's not just about lives and property, it's actually about the nature of the system itself. Therefore, this is the kind of thing that really has to be stopped and therefore yeah. it's necessary to take certain risks and, and, and accept there'll be certain costs that civil liberties unjustly trodden upon yeah, and yeah. other things we'd rather not have happen but it just has to be done. Yeah, yeah. Um, thank you for that. Yes, um, I mean, I do worry that uh, although I say it's better to go down the route of the law rather than... Mm -hmm. I raise so many difficulties for the law that uh, it looks as though I'm saying there's nothing you can do. Um, I'm a bit tempted by that. I mean, I, I, actually think, uh, I actually think that an awful lot of the worries people have about terrorists could, be, could have been dealt with by existing law without any anti-terrorist <coughs> stuff, except perhaps things like um, uh, some extension of surveillance mm -hmm. and a few things like that. Um, but there, I mean, even in the, the ordinary law now, surveillance is all over the place. I mean, there's CCTV things all around here and everywhere in Oxford and so on. Uh, so probably no, nothing was needed for that either. Um, so uh, it's the sort of rush to do all this stuff that, that's got me very nervous. And when you say the thing about um, the, these guys are opposed to the democratic uh, uh, nature of our society and the, uh, the freedom of speech and all that sort of thing, well, yes and no. I mean, uh, uh, this seems to be part of the hysteria in a way, you know. Uh, so it wasn't, wasn't suggesting that they, as a substantive matter, are opposed to democracy or free speech. No, no, no. It's that the way in which they're choosing to prosecute whatever their substantive yes. concerns are is by itself subverting democracy. Yes, yes. But, but successful people sure, are so scared sure. they aren't even deliberating anymore. Sure, they're just sure, actively changing sure, policy sure. to conform sure. to It's a non-democratic way yes. of proceeding, uh, or at least non-liberal democratic way of proceeding. That's true. Whether it's subverting those things is an empirical question. Just from the fact that it's symbolically, you know, um, doing this, nothing. I mean, people are always going on about uh, how you know everything's about the collapse and so on. Well, you know, the Americans are enormously uh, upset about the 9/11 thing because it was a terrible, you know, loss of life and so on. But also because it it, it shattered a uh, a picture they had. You know, but they were an entirely safe, uh, not entirely safe, but very safe society. There was a sort of complacency. You know, other, other nations that had, uh, Sri Lanka had thousands upon thousands of people killed over years and years and years. Um, the United States was just different in this as, as in other respects. And that was broken by this. And, and immediately people felt the entire structure was under threat. But, uh, you know, 
That was clearly not true even at the time, and it's perfectly true it's not subsequent. What has happened, it's a bit like that, is that there's been all this illegal activity by government. And um, uh, there's been that sort of subversion, which of course these guys are probably fairly happy about, the terrorists. So, uh, so there's been, by reaction and by fear of you know, the, the fabric being destroyed, which is the kind of line Chef was running, about destabilisation and uh, degeneration and so on. Uh, and you look around and you think, hang on, what, where is it happening? You know? Well, the pl- only place happening is, in a way, in people's imaginations, I think. Um, so I would think that the, the, the dimensions of the threat don't actually uh, comport with the sort of argument that you were putting about, we've got to bear these costs because look at the other costs. I'm being kind of put the other way around. We better not bear these costs because the other costs are nowhere near uh, as, as ghastly and dramatic as people make out. Of course, if the terrorists had nuclear weapons, which everyone's you know worried about happening, though what evidence I've seen on this is fairly you know uh, negative in terms of the likelihood of this. If they had those sort of things, then, then it wouldn't just be democracy that would be in trouble. It would be an enormous amount of Then you might get terribly worried. Sorry, I'm stopping you coming back. Yeah. Well, sorry, I, I'm just, I think I wasn't clear. I, I maybe should try one last time. And I'll yes, yeah, sure. Just, um, my, my worry wasn't about something so apocalyptic that the terrorists are trying to destroy democracy itself or no, no. destroy the civilization. It's <coughs> more no. this. It's a very simple measure. The terrorists are pro-recycling. They want a recycling program. Yes. This is a philosopher's example. But, yeah. um, but most people don't want one. If the terrorists can't build a voting box, the terrorists start putting bombs in different places and saying, we'll stop bombing yes. you when you use your recycling program. And even though people still don't want recycling, they're so scared of being bombed, they go along and have one. And they and recycle. It seems like democracy has been subverted. It seems like the derivative yes. model of, of people coming together and arguing in an open and honest way and then reaching decisions together has been undermined by this terrorist. Yes. Terrorist yes. The idea is. In other apocalyptic scenarios, this is just that if we don't stop terrorism no, no. at the beginning, then we open the door to these non democratic means of accomplishing yes. objectives, and that's what people die. But this, this, yeah, no, I appreciate that's different from the from the way I was treating the question. Yeah, uh, the first thing I'm going to say about that is this would look a lot better if there were in existence the processes you were talking about. Uh, but uh, really, uh, everything is decided by free and open general discussion in the community in Australia, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, and so on. I don't think so. Uh, it's decided, decided by a whole lot of pressure groups with huge quantities of money uh, and by, uh, well, not in Australia, but in these other countries, by a very small number of people really voting uh, on not on those issues usually either uh, for astonishingly uh, powerful, wealthy people who um, are going to be influenced by other astonishingly powerful, wealthy people. Now, I think that's better than having a dictatorship but I don't think it fits the picture of you know this wondrous process, which which the terrorists will subvert, take the environmental terror, the recycling terrorists, that w- they will subvert if we turn around and recycle because we're afraid of them, rather than because we've had the big open discussion and debate. Um, I would think you know if they get us to recycle, well the outcome's kind of good. Uh, it's it's a deplorable method, absolutely. Uh, but uh, maybe they'll give up after that 
and then we can uh, bring them into the uh, community more and we'll get our open processes going and if enough of us want to stop recycling, unfortunately, uh, then maybe that's it. And, and if they, if now they've come in with us, we'll lock them up if they, if they don't want to go along with this. As you say, these are philosophers' examples, so uh, a certain amount of liberty with reality is, uh, is, is, is to be taken. Um, but, but your overall point, that it may be the case that the, that the costs I'm pointing to are outweighed by some enormous good, uh, I think probably is right if there were this enormous good. Um, though I remember Jeremy Walden arguing, you, you, you can't do this, you know, that, that, that the, um, the talk of balancing and so on in these cases is the wrong, the wrong kind of metaphor uh, for the thing, that the, that the rights and so on that are being overthrown uh, have more solid standing than you could, than you could do a, a, that deal on. Uh, I think there's something in that. I'm just not utterly persuaded. It, it might be that if the, the evils are... Re you know, really, what people always talk about a state of emergency, and they always drag the emergency on too soon, in my view. But if there really was a ghastly emergency, then people... I think that people would be uh, probably rightly happy enough to take some temporary suspension of certain sorts of rights. Um, though, of course, the trouble is it tends not to be temporary, is the, uh, the really horrible thing. There's an awful lot of legislation that was enacted during the war years, in the World War II years, which has stayed on the books in various places because uh, it's, uh, it's useful to the powers that be. Uh, so I'm still, you know, pretty unhappy about, uh, about how it goes. Though I have got this problem that, you know, if, if it's as awful as I say, you know, what do you do about these things? Well, I didn't say much about them in the thing, but I think uh, uh, the last two on my list of um, diplomacy negotiation and, and looking at the grievances that people have uh, have got a lot more to be said for them uh, than is usually said, partly because people don't think these people have grievances. You know, I mean, the, uh, the, the um, allied United States, Britain and all these people... Uh, think that Osama bin Laden has sort of emerged out of a religious, uh, a religious uh, hole in the ground or something uh, with this insane vendetta. And it's got nothing to do with the fact that these powers have been dominating the Middle East for, uh, you know, not just decades, I mean, enormous number of years, and they continue to do so. Uh, and even before Iraq and Afghanistan, the, troop, the United States had their troops all over the globe which the United States thinks of as a great boon to mankind, but it's not clear that that's what the locals are likely to think about it. Uh, and so these people have, I mean, that's Osama had this as his major grievance, the, uh, the American bases and troops. Uh, and uh, if you read his stuff, he says, um, you know, a minuscule amount about uh, uh, setting up the caliphate and all that sort of stuff, and an enormous amount about all these grievances. Uh, and if, you know, if if per impossible, uh, the United States said, oh, OK, we'll take the troops out from all these places. He would have been left holding a very small bag. Uh, and I, I think the United States would have been a lot better off if they'd taken them out. Uh, well, they did take them out of Saudi Arabia. Yeah, they did eventually. That's no, right. They, they did they, exactly what Bin Laden said. They, they, they did in the end, that's right. Yeah, yeah. They, they did in the end. All right, we've got time for one more question. Can you one Go for it. Some may argue that targeted killing operations, and yes. especially the drone attacks, are the 
but only a game in town is the only way that you can yes. deal with the terrorists, you cannot capture, etc. On the other hand, legal scholars, uh, for example, Harold Cole from Harvard, when they try to excuse the targeted killing operations or try to justificate them, they usually uh, argue the Article 51 of the UN Charter, which is about self defense, right? Yes. The problem is that, well, self defense implies that there is at least a threat. It's not the same as punishment. So, no. either you prove that there is a threat, and so you can target them, or, or you can't. And so, you cannot go for this excuse of self defense, right? Mm -hmm. But do you think that there is a little bit of incoherence between the legal excuses, the political excuses, and how can one get to the paralysis? <coughs> There is any kind of moral justification for targeted killing operations. Are yeah. they within the conception of self-defense? Yes. I know that Professor Shini and Professor David Rodin talk about this. Yes. Well, I, I, think, I think you're probably right about the legal uh, situation. Uh, uh, there's been a strong legal tradition uh, against assassination, which these things basically are. Um, but uh, the interesting question is whether uh, there's a moral case in, in favour of these, uh, uh, these assassination things. Um, the, the, the way that the, the case usually goes is that there's a, um, that, that these people are directing an attack against, or, yeah, the attack hasn't yet happened, but they're directing uh, various plans, processes and so on, which are, which constitute an attack in embryo uh, against, I don't know who, United States or whatever, uh, and that therefore that makes them legitimate tar targets. Um, there's all the problems that go with knowing whether it's the case that that these people are doing that. But suppose that's satisfied. Um, you know, uh, Fred, Fred Smith. You have to have a. Arabic name, but I can't for the moment think one up. But uh, he's 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 off there in some mountain somewhere uh, in that area, and he's planning these various things. He's got um, you know a supply of lethal underpants, and he's uh, got guys organised to put these lethal underpants on and get on planes and so on. And you know there there's been intercepts to uh, of him telling people what plane to get where and so on. Um, well, this starts to add up to the case that this guy is a serious adversary who's, you know, not going to be the one with the underpants, but he's the guy not wearing them, but he's the guy supplying them and getting it all organised and so on. Um, consider just like that. It seems to me there is a moral case for saying that if you can't capture him, and of course we've talked about that already, uh, then you can kill him. Uh, the trouble is that uh, that's taking it in isolation from a whole lot of other things. Uh, and those other things are all uh, concerned with uh, consequences and uh, uh, likelihoods and so on. You know, because uh, one of the problems with the targeted assassination thing is, as the Israelis uh, have done it, I think, is that it, uh, it doesn't stop uh, other terrorists doing things. Uh, even when they've got it dead right, and there's a lot of cases where it's unclear that they've got it right, and several where they clearly got it wrong. Uh, so even if you satisfy those artificial uh, stories, I, the story as I told it, 
and you had all the epistemology right, uh, there's still the problem that this uh, is more likely to encourage terrorism than not. There's the fact that it sets a precedent for a, a norm, which is what now is happening, I think, uh, of targeted assassination. And you've got to look at whether that is a good thing to have rather than just whether this particular case is justified. Uh, there's also the fact that uh, it's always assumed that if you can get rid of one of these planners, uh, that'll deliver a tremendous body blow to the organisation. And I, again, I think that that's not at all obvious. It looks very much as though there are plenty of people who are willing to step into the, into the vacancy once it happens. So I think once you start thinking of <coughs> the pure moral case becomes very much more cloudy. Uh, indeed, I think it you know, becomes uh, uh, so cloudy that it's, you know, in, in the real world, it's, it's impermissible. Uh, but I do think sort of in principle a case could be made for it. And that's, I think, one of the things that influences uh, Obama and company uh, very much because they think, in the, they think of the pure case and then they think also, isn't this going to be very good from the point of view of none of our people being killed and none of our soldiers being killed because there's only this drone going over uh, and not in any sort of danger and so on. Uh, and they don't think, you know, of the enormous political repercussions in Pakistan, for instance, which is going to go, is, in the drone case, that's going to be, uh, that's just building up nightmarish scenarios for the future. I hope that's partly on the, on the yes. track. Yeah. All right, so uh, we're out of time, but I hope you'll join me in thanking Tony for a wonderful series. Uh, and uh, for concluding, this is the last... Uh, the last of these seminars for the term of the academic year. So join me in thanking uh, uh, Tony.